Hi, I'm Ellen Baker, and this is my story, or at least a little piece of my story. I was born and raised in Macon, Georgia, the middle of three children in a very loving home with strong Christian parents and what I would say was a pretty idyllic childhood. My parents made sure we knew that we were loved by them and by God. My faith was cemented at an early age from attending years of Sunday school, vacation Bible school, youth group, and attending a Christian and middle high a Christian middle and high school. Although I always thought of myself as a Christian, I remember the defining moment in seventh grade when I gave my life to Christ and knew beyond a doubt that Jesus was my Savior. I wish I could say that it was all perfect and just got better from there, but as many of us do, I had ups and downs in my life, times when I was close to God and times when I was not. But throughout my life and the good and the bad, God's love and presence have been constant. I look back at choices I made that weren't good, breakups, friendships that went sideways, mistakes I made at work or in my personal life, and the thing that I always had and I knew I could count on was my faith. I knew God loved me, and I knew that He was where I could and would turn in times of trouble when friends and other people let me down. My parents were also a strong constant and probably one of the biggest influences in my life. They were kind, loving, fair, and faithful. They were wonderful examples of how to trust God and how to follow him. Fast forward a few years, I met my husband, Russ, when we were both living and working in Atlanta in our 20s. We started dating, and although my parents thought he was great, they were a bit worried that he was from a place as far away from Georgia as you could be in the U.S., Washington State. Russ and I got married while living in Atlanta, where we lived for several years before moving to Charleston, South Carolina. During this time, we had three beautiful girls with whom my parents and we were absolutely smitten. When Russ took a job with this little company called Amazon in the early 2000s, we decided to move to his home state of Washington. We vowed to fly back and forth as much as possible to spend as much time with my family as we could. It wasn't easy, but we did a pretty good job of flying ourselves, three little girls, and what felt like 50 suitcases, diaper bags, strollers, food, and toys across the country. It was super stressful, but well worth it once we were there. About five years after we moved to Mercer Island, we got the terrible news that my 65-year-old mother had cancer. She had not been feeling well for the last year or so, but wrote it off as the doctors couldn't find anything definitive. I was really fortunate that my in-laws basically moved into our house here on Mercer Island to keep things running smoothly and make sure the girls got to school with teeth brushed and clean clothes so that I could spend as much time as possible with my mom in Georgia. We had no idea how fast things would progress, and, and through it all, my mom fought like crazy and was determined to beat the cancer. Sadly, that was not the plan that God had for her. The cancer progressed quickly, and less than eight months after diagnosis, we lost my mom. While she was sick, I would think about the what-ifs and her dying. It was more than I could bear. We were so close, and she was such an important presence in my life and my kids' young lives. I used to say that if she died, you could just bury me right alongside her because I couldn't imagine my life without her. When the day came and she passed away, however, I didn't feel the devastation that I was sure I would feel. I wasn't curled up in fetal position like I imagined I might be. Yes, of course, I was sad, a deep sadness like I had never felt before. But what came right along beside that sadness was peace. Somehow I felt completely at peace with her passing. I knew that feeling had to be from God and from my faith in him. How else could I have felt such a peace at such a terrible time? I know that I'll see my mom again and that she's in a better place where her body is whole and healthy. 
I trust in God, and as it says in Romans, that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And that gives me great comfort and peace in all circumstances. I leave you with this verse from Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to my story. This morning, our scripture reading, we have Old Testament and New Testament. And our scripture reading from the Old Testament comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain, prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And from the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. And last, John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray for this morning's message. As we think of you as our Heavenly Father, then we come to you this morning as your children, not so much seeking answers, but just wanting to be with our Father. Thank you for your ever-abiding presence in us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your ever-abiding presence in the Church of Jesus Christ, this body called Evergreen. Holy Spirit, Give us eyes to see as we submit to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been setting the context of these four very familiar Advent themes, these four virtues, these four words, hope last week, peace this week. We've been setting them in the context of the series that we've had throughout the fall. And that is God's story and our story. And our application that we've tried to make in each of the messages is to say we need to bring our, we need to know God's story first before our story enters it. If we flip it and we try to bring God into our story, then we're just manipulating God. We're just creating a God in our own image. And so my desire this morning is certainly that we enter into God's story. We enter into what the scriptures tell us about peace. So first question for you is, do any images come to your mind when you hear the very familiar Advent text from Luke chapter 2? And I'll just read it. And there were in the same country 
shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. Any images come to mind? How about this one? That is the King James Version of that passage. 1965 is when that animation hit American television. And I was a child at the time, many of us in this room were. But there has been an amazing longevity to this simple story. And the presentation where Linus comes out, I love it. He's all by himself, and he just looks there and he says, Lights, please. And then he goes into the soliloquy of, of this Luke passage from the King James Version. And how does he close it? And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. One of the most succinct sermons and probably one of the few Christmas passages that actually gets into our secular culture. Put up the next graphic if you would, because this has one small phrase from Linus's little soliloquy in the King James. And uh, let me just point out, we have to be careful of even images we find on the internet because, as you know, this statement was made by the angels to who? To the shepherds. And so, uh, you know, get your, get your Bible facts right. It was not the three wise men. They come later in the story. But my point here is in the King James Version, it says, and, uh, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, go ahead and keep that slide up, um, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The last part is the one that we tend to emphasize on Christmas Eve at our services. The text seems very optimistic. Jesus' birth will usher in this goodwill to man, this earthly peace. And what caring human being does not want to see human peace and goodwill especially at Christmas and as we anticipate moving into a new year. But I know Pastor Julian Elise would agree with me. This is the pastor's dilemma on Christmas Eve. Typically, we have a full house. We have people who come once a year. They want to feel good. Do I give them the bad news that makes the good news good? We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want them to say, what a cranky old pastor that guy was. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus never promised goodwill to men in the sense of the humanistic desire for all of us to link hands together. And notice, put this text back up if you would of the image, notice the comma at the end of earth and on earth peace. This King James Version, which was translated back in the 1600s, was the dominant text up until the 1960s. I grew up with the King James as a dominant Bible text in my church. And yet, today, scholars make a good point. It's a misplaced comma. And so now put up the text in the New International Version, if you would, one of our more modern translations. 
glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace, the comma's gone, and they fill it out with the, 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 uh, the correct translation, to those upon whom his favor rests. And so we go from a statement in the King James that sounds like we're looking for earthly human peace, and all of a sudden we realize that what we're talking about, the angel's message is, there is peace, there is an ability to have a gospel reality that's available to every human being that both needs and can find peace with God. But that's the starting point. It isn't the humanistic desire for all of us to have world peace. Last week, Pastor Julie encouraged all of us to look at these virtues that we're looking at in the four Sundays of Advent and to do a word search on each of them. If you do a word search on the word peace in the Scriptures, the first thing that comes up and the primary understanding of biblical peace is peace with God. That's where it begins. Let's look at Romans. One of the seminal texts, this is Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In ourselves, we are at war with a holy God because we fall so far short. But the cross and the resurrection ends that conflict as Scrappy and Rascal taught us today. It ends that conflict and that enmity between the two, making this peace with God possible. That's part one of the good news. Here's a second part related to peace. This is from Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, separating Jews and Greeks. And so out of peace with God comes the possibility of peace with our fellow man and fellow woman. Peace with God makes possible reconciliation in the New Testament between Jews and Greeks and now between all peoples. But back to the pastor's dilemma. Do we share the bad news that gets us to the good news? And the text from Jeremiah tells us that God's people always got in trouble when they sought their peace from someone other than Yahweh. Let's look again at the Jeremiah text from chapter 6. This is the prophet Jeremiah at the end of the nation of Israel's history. And as a side note, Jeremiah's entire call to ministry was watching the nation that he was born into he loved and was called to minister in, go on a downward slide. 
And in fact, God said, nothing you do to share about the dyers of judgment will change the people. How would you like to be called to ministry if God said, nothing you do is going to make a difference? But I want you to be obedient anyway and tell the people that my judgment is coming. And so this is what Jeremiah is seeing. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. The prophets and the priests alike, they all practice deceit. They dress the wounds of my people as though they weren't serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They'll be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. And so here... (laughs) That would clear the house on Christmas Eve. You don't want Jeremiah preaching your Christmas Eve service. The tragedy is that even Israel's priests and prophets have succumbed to looking elsewhere for their peace. They were dressing the people's wound. They weren't telling the truth. They were promising something that wasn't a reality. But even in these Old Testament texts, there's glimmers of hope. And as God always does, he provides a way back from spiritual delusion. And so we jump down in this passage to verse 16. Jeremiah gets to say this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But here's the sad reality of that group of people. But you said, we will not walk in it. The road that Jeremiah is referring to is Yahweh's covenant faithfulness to his people. The thing that God initiated with Abraham and with Moses and with David, and he has sustained it now to the period of time at the end of Israel's life as a nation. Whenever we as individuals or whenever we as God's chosen church are wayward and we're seeking peace in someone or something else, Jesus always has a way back if our hearts are tender to his ways. In the New Testament text, Jesus echoing Jeremiah invited followers to this true peace. John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. And I love John 16. I've told these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is a realist. He is not promising some humanistic ideal. He's saying you will have trouble, but there is a person that you should look to whenever life unravels. About 10 years ago, the youth pastor that served with me at Bellingham Covenant came to me in one of our meetings, and he expressed to me how he had been watching over the last number of years that the stress level on our students in the youth ministry was just ratcheting up. 
He noticed that they were under stress of academics, under sports, under their activities. And then, as Chris Thomason pointed out a couple weeks ago in his sermon, especially young people today are under the pressure of maintaining an image that they can create online. The pressure to have a social conscience. The pressure to change the world. How many times do we hear that phrase now that our children and our youth are under? And we talked about ways that we could try to provide a sanctuary when children would come on and youth would come on our campus to try and alleviate some of those pressures. But it isn't just young people that feel that today. If there's anything over this past year, we all feel the weight of all the issues that our world has gone through. I don't even need to name them because we've chronicled. It's like a pile-on each month as we have walked through this journey as a church. The pandemic just triggered all kinds of things that just feel like a huge burden. And there's another phrase that I'm hearing from a secular culture. When it looks at these issues, it says, don't be on the wrong side of history on this one. Do not be on the wrong side of history. Do you hear the subtle burden that that places on each and every individual that wants to do right, and yet the pressure's on? If I screw this one up, it's going to be recorded in history. I want you to know this morning that God never intended us to carry the weight of the world's immense problems? Do we get ourselves involved in things and are we called to be the kingdom of God? Yes. But the weight of the world's problems were not intended for us to bear. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the principle was seek God's kingdom And that will give you the ability to have a balanced earthly focus. Read it today if you are feeling under heavy burden. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Jesus was trying to lighten their load, not to pour it on. I'm not minimizing the importance of Christian engagement. But if we respond to these issues as our humanistic world does, we have lost our witness and we risk proclaiming as the false prophets, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's only one side of history that every human being on this planet needs to be concerned about. And that is your new birth. In Jesus Christ, in your salvation into the family of God. At the end of life, each of us, believer and non-believer, will face Jesus. And I can tell you what he's not going to ask. Boy, that American election in 2020. I'm, I'm just wondering again, who in the world did you vote for in that one? He's not going to say, how about that pandemic? What was your attitude towards wearing a mask again? 
Please hear me. I'm not diminishing the issues that we are living through. But as followers of Jesus, peace is only possible because we continually center ourselves in the Prince of Peace. Only then will Jesus compel us to action and respond in grace to what we have received. Only from our union with Christ are we able to offer anything to a dying world. I want to close this morning with a story about a dear woman who was still living in the 70s when I was becoming a young leader in Youth for Christ in Seattle. Her name's Corey Tenboom. Some of you are familiar with her. For the famous story that was chronicled in the book Hiding Place, as Corey's parents and her family hid perhaps up to 800 Jews and saved their lives from the Nazis in Holland during World War II. Corey had Christian parents. Her father was a very generous Christian man. He was a watchmaker. Their own family was found out. In fact, they were ratted out by a fellow citizen, a Dutch neighbor, ratted out what they were doing in their home. And they were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp where one brother and one of Corey's sisters died. Her father contracted tuberculosis, and he later died. But through their sacrifice, again, 800 people found life. And I just want to close by reading this portion. Corey shared this story when I heard her live. She had had two strokes in the late 70s, but she was still speaking the gospel. And I heard this story live and later found it in her book. Put up the next graphic if you would, just so you can see her family, her mom and dad, her siblings. And so, seated next to father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked about a difficult adult subject. My father turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up. He lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads, and he set it on the floor. Will you carry this case off the train, Corey, he said. I stood up, and I, I tugged at it. It was crammed with all the watches and spare parts that he had purchased that morning. I said to my dad, it's, it's too heavy, I can't lift it. Yes, he said, and it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little daughter to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can hear it. But for now, you must trust me carry it for you. And I was satisfied, writes Corey. More than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content 
to leave them in my Father's keeping. I think that story of the wisdom of Mr. Tenboom is true to us today. Jesus warned about undue burdens because he knew they're the enemies of the peace that he wants to give us. When we take on burdens that are not ours to carry, we fight, actually, against the true peace that Jesus desires for us. So here these most comforting words, my favorite words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.